Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Our Lady of Grace, in the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so today, I'm really just going to comment this first class, the first three articles of the Tertia Pars, the third part of the Summa. Uh, question one, on the fittingness of the Incarnation. And talk about some of the theology or theological questions this raises. Why did God become a man? For Aquinas. What's at stake in answering that question one way or the other? There's controversies involved in how you answer that question. And what are some of the repercussions of the different answers people have given? Prologue to the third part, which is the part of the Summa that treats Christ in the sacraments, says this, Forasmuch as our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to save His people from their sins, quoting Matthew, as the angel announced, showed unto us in His own person the way of truth, whereby we may attain to the bliss of eternal life by rising again. It is necessary in order to complete the work of theology that after considering the last end of human life and the virtues and vices, there should follow consideration of the Savior of all and of the benefits bestowed by Him on the human race. And he says, we'll consider the Savior Himself and then the sacraments by which we attain our salvation. And then he says, the end of immortal life to which we attain by the resurrection, which he never got to. First, the dub, uh, concerning the first, a double consideration occurs. First, about the mystery of the Incarnation itself, whereby God was made man for our salvation. Secondly, about such things as were done or suffered, the acta at passa, the things that Jesus did and that He underwent or suffered uh, as our Savior, i.e. God, God incarnate. Okay. It's actually interesting and important that he puts this treatise on Christ last. Most modern theologies put the teaching of Christ first. How do you know the Trinity? Through the mystery of Christ. How do you know what's human? Through the mystery of Christ. Karl Barth is the most important uh, interlocutor here. He tried to recenter everything in the 20th century on the person of Jesus as normative. So he looks at the attributes of God, God's eternity and God's freedom, only by first looking at the humanity of God. It's funny, it's a different way to start, different order. But Aquinas inscribes the mystery of Christ within a, two contexts. The context of who God is, the Trinitarian God, who's, as it were, there's a sort of theocentrism in Aquinas. What's first and last is the Trinity. We come from the Trinity to return to the Trinity. And secondly, the final end of man. Why did God create angels and men and the whole creation so that we could be called to the beatitude to see God face to face? So Christ is, as it were, inscribed in the context of these two, uh, as it were, previously identified mysteries. The, the, the ultimate first and, and last mystery, the Alpha and Omega, which is the mystery of the triune God. And then, the triune God having created the mystery of the reason of the creation. Why did God create? So that he could, well, because he, he thought we might quite like to exist, as some people say. He, he, he created us uh, as an expression of uh, gratuitous goodness so that we could come to enjoy the life of God, to see God as He is, to be His vision, 
to commune in the mystery of Trinitarian life. So man's final end is to commune in the mystery of Trinitarian life. Christ comes in then, in the context of fallen and wounded human nature, to restore us to us our primary or primal vocation, the vocation of the human person to see God. Okay, so he becomes the way, the way back to the, the understanding and knowledge of God. Okay. Um, let's go to the first article. Whether it was fitting that God should become incarnate. And you have arguments here. I'm not going to read everything. I do a selective way of doing this. I read the parts that I think might be more profitable to examine, you know, as we go along. I think it's important to read everything oneself, but, you know, in terms of just commenting, I think one, one can be selective. Um, there are arguments here against the Incarnation. Um, besides Christian self-questioning about whether it was fitting that God would become incarnate, what would have been the medieval sources of dial- dispute here? I mean, who, who in the Middle Ages would, be, would you be arguing with about whether God could become incarnate? The Muslims, the Jews, Jews and Muslims, right. Well, he says, on the contrary, I'm going to the said contra, you know that in the Summa you always have the objections, and then the said contra is where he puts, as it were, an argument from authority, usually. Because theology builds on revelation, revelation is given to us, and because it's given to us there's a certain kind of divine authority transmitted through scripture and tradition. So usually the said contra he goes to scripture and tradition, which he does right here, and then he gives his own theological explanation in what's called the corpus or the body of the article. So, said contra, it would seem most fitting that by visible things the invisible things of God should be made known. For to this end was the whole world made, as is clear from the word of the Apostle in Romans. For the invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And in John Damascene says, at the beginning of the Christological treatise in his book, The Orthodox Faith, Book 3, By the mystery of the Incarnation are made known at once the goodness, the wisdom, the justice, and the power or might of God. His goodness, for he did not despise the weakness of his own handiwork, his justice, since on God's de- on man's defeat he caused the tyrant to be overcome by none other than man. And yet he did not snatch men forcibly from death, his wisdom, for he found a suitable discharge for a most heavy debt, his power or infinite might, for there is nothing greater than for God to become incarnate. One immediate thing to be aware of when Aquinas talks about the reasons behind what God did in Christ is he always gives multiple avenues of explanation he's not solving the problem of the incarnation the way you solve a math problem there's one answer to the math problem it's either wrong or right I mean usually as far as I know as I understand math you see usually a wrong or right answer in the incarnation there's a multiplicity of effects of divine grace so the mind can't grasp everything say as it were under one concept of rationality there's a multitude of complementary things going on. The justice of God, the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, the power of God. And the benefits accrued to human beings. In any case, let's see then what he says after he's commented John Damascene, noted noted John Damascene, which is of course a very respectable precedent in theology. Now what's he going to focus in on? I answer that. To each thing, that is befitting which belongs to it by reason of its very nature. Thus, to reason befits man, since it belongs to him because he is of a rational nature. Okay, things act in a way befitting their nature. 
and that's a kind of goodness that flows from them, right? Human beings are capable of uh, rationality, moral action, compassion, etc. But the very nature of God is goodness, as is clear from Dionysius the Areopagite in the Divine Names, first chapter. Hence, what belongs to the essence of goodness befits God. Okay, so far so, God, so good. So far so good. God is essentially good. Now that he makes a little move here. But it belongs to the essence of goodness to communicate itself to others, as is plain from Dionysius, from the Divine Names. Now that's an interesting principle. To be good is to communicate goodness to others. Now, you can spend, of course, your life thinking about that and the analogical applications of it. When does uh, a fruit tree become uh, mature? Right? When it puts out branches and fruits and then reproduces its kind. The apples fall into the ground and it makes more apple trees. And we call that, we would call it a good tree because it produces good fruit for us. Right? So because it's helping us achieve our end, which is nutrition. But, or we say it's beautiful, a sort of aesthetic end of perfection of our sensitive life. But in itself, the tree becomes good when it produces its like kind. Or likewise, a horse becomes a great horse when it's a champion runner. And then it can reproduce its like kind or such, you know, whatnot. In other words, there's a kind of communication of the good that's inscribed in things. Or a human being, we say, Mother Teresa is good because she communicates charity or she radiates um, generosity or whatnot. Right? So, there's a, like multiple levels of this. But he's saying, on the highest and supreme level, God is good because he communicates being. He gives things to be. And not only does he give us to be, but then he communicates to us the life of grace, giving us to exist, with, giving us the mystery of participation in eternal life, the mystery of participation in his own Trinitarian life. Hence it belongs to the essence of the highest good to communicate itself in the highest manner to the creature. And this is brought about chiefly by so joining created nature to himself that one person is made up of these three, the word, a soul, and flesh, as Augustine says. Hence it is manifest that it was fitting that God should become incarnate. Okay, so he's making a lot of moves very quickly there. But the basic thing is, not only does God want to communicate to us existence and grace, but there are reasons why we could think of God wanting to communicate grace in the highest way possible. By uniting himself to our human nature. How could we be closer to God than for God to become a man? I mean, if you're in the, if you're in the business, so to speak, of self-communication, divine self-communication, there's really no greater form uh, or format for self-communication, divine self-communication, than for God to become a man. In the, in, the, in the kind of ways that God can unite himself to us or unite us to him, there's nothing more perfect. Now, doesn't that sound just like we're headed right for, of course, God therefore created in order to become incarnate? It's just Scotus's position we'll talk about in a minute. It sounds like he's going to say, well, since that's the most perfect way for God to communicate himself, he, he must create us for that reason. That's not really actually the case. We'll see why. But he's simply making the case here that it's, there's a certain fittingness to God becoming man because it allows God to communicate his goodness to us. Now, a couple of qualifiers. He's only arguing here that it's possible to see reasons why God does it. He's not arguing that God had to do it insofar as he's good. Why is that important? The argument here is, I would say, more what we might call a posteriori, a posteriori than a priori. 
That's to say, it's more moving from what God has done. To, we're presuming in theology. We're in theology here, huh? God has become a man. Therefore, He can. <laughs> and therefore, there's a certain wisdom or fittingness to it. Now, we're going along after the fact. A posteriori means after the fact. And we're trying to look at it theologically and say, why do you do that? Right? And there's a certain reason. The communication or diffusion of goodness. We're not arguing a priori. That means before the fact. And saying, well, God is good. Goodness likes to communicate itself. Therefore, if God is good and goodness likes to communicate itself, and the highest form of goodness is to join oneself to the other, you know, God joining himself to man, therefore, uh, because God is good, he would become incarnate. I mean, just one small or major, actually, problem with that is, if you can really make that kind of logical argument, then you can prove the incarnation by natural reason. Right? You could prove by that you get an argument that God exists, natural reason, metaphysics, argument that God is good from metaphysical argumentation, but a good God will communicate himself, the highest form of communication will be for God to become a man, but God's going to come do what's in the grace and the highest goodness, therefore the incarnation is a necessity, therefore Christianity is true, I've just proved it. Right? And then I come under the condemnations of Vatican I and I'd be a heretic. Because Vatican I says, no, you know, the mysteries of faith are not demonstrable by natural reason. The mysteries of faith are not demonstrable by natural reason. You enter into the mysteries of faith by grace. We're in a science without evidence. <laughs> it's an objective science. It's the most objective science. It's the highest science there is, and there's no evidence for it. And that's the weird thing about theology, because we're in the highest science. That's exactly because it's the highest science, there's no evidence for it. Because it's higher than anything we can get to by our own natural powers. It's the mystery of what God is doing to redeem the world. But it's available only through the veil of faith in grace. So you enter into this mystery in grace. So we've entered into the mystery. God did become a man. Why did he do it? Is it people object, but that's not fitting for God. Well, it is fitting because God is goodness and God communicates his goodness through the incarnation. We're, we're, started, we're entering into the veil of faith and then we're asking the question, how is this not unfitting to God? We're not proving the incarnation by natural reason. It's an interesting distinction. Does, does that make some sense? There were German theologians in the 19th century who tried to prove that you know, if you're rational, you need to believe ultimately in the necessity of the incarnation, and therefore the, the, the rational truth, the ra reason could kind of prove Christianity. They got they got they got, uh, they got in trouble. Anyway, so it's just an interesting, but I think not not trivial point. Let's move to the second article. I'm going to just mention one word, though, on the way. The, the article is, says, um, "Is it fit?" The first article says, "Is it fitting? Was it fitting that God become man?" man and um, "conviens" in Latin, or which comes from this word. I think I'm misspelling it, but anyway, "conveniencia." Oh, sorry, I didn't. "Conveniencia." which we get, of course, the word convenient from, which is actually a very related notion. Uh, the, to say something is convenient means usually you could do it some other way, but this is the, the easier or better way to do it. So it's very important he's saying, was it fitting? He's not saying was it necessary or was it impossible? 
He's presuming, he's presuming that it's possible for God to become incarnate, or at least he's, he could argue that. Um, he's also presuming it's not necessary, but was it fitting? It's a much more subtle concept. And we're going to see he's going to explore this in the next two articles. Why would, how do you differentiate what's more or less fitting? It's a lot harder, in a way. But see, the thing is, all things are possible to God that aren't implicitly contradictory. All things are possible to God that aren't implicitly contradictory. So saying that something's possible to God is pretty trivial. God can do a lot of things. And not therefore, not much is necessary for God. It's not very much... You know, it's, it doesn't make sense to talk very much in terms of God needing to do things for us uh, in, in view of creation. So, you you know, the use of the language whether, that, whether it's possible for God to do something, whether it's necessary for God to do something doesn't help us very much. But fittingness does because it sort of suggests why did God do X rather than Y? Why is the incarnation more helpful than if God hadn't become incarnate? So, with that introduction to the theme of fittingness, notice the next question. Was it necessary for the restoration of the human race that the word of God should become incarnate? Now one of the principal dialogue partners here behind this is St. Anselm of Canterbury, who wrote in the 11th century this famous work, Curdeus Omo, Why Did God Become Man? There's sort of three really famous places where this question is discussed. One is Athanasius's On the Incarnation, which I mentioned yesterday, his early work. The second is Anselm of Canterbury's Why Did God Become Man? And the third one is this question, first question of Summa. Sort of, if you want to make the tour of the question, Why Did God Become Man? in the classical texts, those are the three, they're not the only three places, but they're three of the most important places. And then you get later another, a fourth position, sort of another position of Scotus. Well, this is a very important article in Aquinas. This is a very famous article, and it has uh, a dimension to it that's very Athanasian, and it has a dimension that's very um, Anselmian. He sort of he sort of takes theology from the Athanasian street stream, which he probably got through John Damascene from the Eastern Fathers, and he takes the Western tradition on satisfaction that God became man to satisfy for our sins from Anselm. We're going to talk more about satisfaction on Friday. Well, okay, let's go right to the said contra. He says, On the contrary, what frees the human race from perdition is necessary for the salvation of man. But the mystery of the incarnation is such, according to John 3.16, God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Therefore, it was necessary for man's salvation that God should become incarnate. There are two questions, in fact, behind when you start talking about necessity language. He's going to end up qualifying this, so he actually he's going to end up saying, this is very subtle. Anselm says it's necessary for God to become incarnate to save us. So Aquinas is going to say, yes, it's necessary for God to become incarnate to save us. And then he's going to end up saying why it isn't necessary. This is what you do when you live in a world of theological authorities. You, you say, uh, he's absolutely right, and here's the reason. And then you explain why he's wrong. Um, but in fact, what he ends up doing is, it's really, the truth is better to say, he, he ends up qualifying the way in which he makes those affirmations. Now in fact, there's two senses, at least, of what you mean when you say it's necessary. One is to say, is a necessity according to the subject, and the other is a necessity according to the means. 
is it necessary for God to save humanity for God as a subject? I mean, in other words, if we ruined creation through sin, does God have to save us? Right? That's one question. And Anselm's very, that's the question Anselm's kind of obsessed with on the one hand. Well, he, he asks in both senses, but he, he sends a, Anselm very, is pretty cautious. At the beginning he says, well, God, for the sake of his honor, had to restore his creation. But then he gets, he gets careful about that and he says, well, no, no, we need to really say it's fitting that he would save his creation for the sake of his honor. But then you've got the question of the necessity of means. And this is the question, if God freely decides to save us, not needing to, but wanting to, can he save us any other way than through the Incarnation? See, that's a very different question. There's the necessity of the subject. Does God need to do this in order to preserve His honor after the fall? Save us from letting the devil triumph over the works of God. Versus there's the question of the necessity of the means. Could He do it a different way? Could He save us, say, I don't know. Well, some other thing, something else in the Incarnation. Alright, well Aquinas now having said it's going to be necessary in some way then begins to qualify this. And he says, A thing is said to be necessary in a, to a certain end in two ways. First, it's necessary for the preservation of human life. Second, when the end is attained better and more conveniently as a horse is necessary for a journey. Remember that Aquinas walked everywhere he went. Right? Following St. Dominic. Right? So, <laughs> this is a very interesting personal example. <laughs> they didn't use horses. So it makes a point to the friars who are reading this, right? I mean, yes, it was necessary for God to become a man, sort of the way it's necessary for you to have a horse when you travel, but you never travel on a horse. So it's not necessary for you to have a horse to travel. So in that way, it was. you see, it's, it's really quite <laughs> clearly undermining the notion of necessity. In the first way, it was not necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of human nature. For God, of His omnipotent power, could have restored human nature in many other ways. Now look right away, He looks at necessity of the means. That's what he's focused on. Anselm is much more than necessity of the subject. Could God, would God lose face, as it were, if he didn't do this? And he says, well, it's not necessary in strict sense, but it's utterly fitting. You know, God's not going to let the creation be ruined by the devil. Aquinas is not interested in that question. He's much more in the question of the means. Is it, could God have saved us any other way? And what does he say right away? Yes, he could have, definitely. God could have saved us in a multiplicity of manners. But in the second sense of necessity, it was necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of human nature. It's more convenient, convenience, it's more fitting. So what does he do? He takes the traditional language of necessity, and in fact, he's shifting it. He's subverting it. And he's saying, let's not talk about necessity, let's talk about what's fitting. This was the most fitting way to save us. This is how gentle his mind is. You know, he's really a theological giant who is already seeing where the problem is, but it, it rhetorically, he just so gently, you know, takes the notion of necessity and shows you there are different kinds of necessity, and really what he's doing is saying what they meant when they said necessity in this specific sense is the most fitting way. Now let's transpose the whole conversation into the key of fittingness. It's, it's rather, as an ecclesiastical m mentality, it's rather beautiful. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't just say, Anselm was wrong, you know. Because Anselm's not wrong. He saves the truth, he preserves the truth of the necessity language by shifting it into another key. And Anselm does use the language of fittingness a little bit, but not as, not as resolutely. Uh, 
Um, so, for God in His omnipotent power could have done, could have restored human nature in other ways, in the second way. And says, hence Augustine says, we shall also show that other ways were not wanting to God, to whose power all things are equally subject, but that, that it was not a more fitting way of healing our misery. Okay, so then he shows my fitting, the fittingness stuff is, is based in, in Augustine. Now here he starts sort of two tables, right? The next two huge paragraphs. The first one we might say is in a sense a Thomistic reading of the Greek uh, theme or the Athanasian theme. God became a man that we might be divinized. God united himself to our human nature that we might be united to God. So what's the main purpose of the incarnation? Divination. Divinization. And the second paragraph is going to be the Anselmian theme, the Western theme. Why did God become a man? To satisfy for our sins by dying on the cross. Satisfactio. He gave his life for us. So the first table he puts first. Why? Well, because the first thing he did is unite. Aquinas puts the positive teleological first. He became man in order to um, put us back on the road, back on the way towards divinization. And how does he read divinization? Very Thomistically, as growth in faith, hope, and love in view of eternal life, the theological virtues. Aquinas is, of course, always thinking about grace in us primarily, as it were in the core as living the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love in view of the beatific vision. So what happens through the incarnation? If, how do you understand the benefits of the incarnation for us in terms of divinization? That God, God reveals to us who He is in Christ in order that we might be restored to faith, hope, and love and grow in those theological virtues in view of eternal life. God became man that we might be united to God. The second table is, you know, going to be the, the withdrawal from evil. God became man to save us from evil, death, and damnation. So he puts the negative stuff second. It's it's not less real, but the point is, you know, it's it's also not. He's not. I mean, he's putting the emphasis on the the redemption of the goodness of the human person too. You know, we sort of want to do both these things, you know, in terms of our own theology. We want to see the positive side of what man is called to, the dignity of what we are called to as children of God first, but also not minimize the reality uh, of human evil and what we've been saved from. So it's sort of Eastern and then Western theology, if you, will, if you like. Um, I mean, that's a little too exclusive, I mean, because both, both traditions of the East and the West have both these elements, but one is more pronounced in either, in each tradition. So... Okay, here we go. Now this may be viewed with respect to our furtherance in the good, divinization. First, with regards to faith, so he goes to the theological virtues, which is made more certain by believing God himself who speaks, so Augustine says, in order that man might journey more trustfully toward the truth, the truth itself, the Son of God, having assumed human nature, established and founded faith. It's a growth in faith for us to encounter God in the flesh. We know God better. In, in the, because God became a man and restored to us faith that we could be united with, with God. If God united himself with us, we can believe that we can be united with God. Secondly, with regards to hope, whereby, uh, which is thereby greatly strengthened. So Augustine says, Nothing was so necessary for raising our hope as to show us how deeply God loved us and what could afford us a stronger proof of this than the Son of God should become a partner with us uh, of human nature. I mean, sometimes I find you, you, this is not giving away any secrets, but I mean, 
you have to kind of bring this argument up in the confessional with people. People come and say, I, I, you know, I, um, I, I don't believe God. I have trouble believing God loves me. And you have to recall the objectivity of faith. Well, he died on a cross, so that argument really is over right now, okay? You know, this dispute has been settled. <laughs> we know he loves us because he died on a cross for us, right? It's actually impious. You know, you're, you're trying to say this in a way to be a, a kind of act of humility, but in fact, you know, it's not entirely pious. Anyway, thirdly, with regard to charity, which is greatly enkindled by this. So Augustine says, what greater cause is there uh, is there of the Lord's coming than to show God's love for us? And he afterwards adds, if we have been slow to love, at least let us hasten to love in return. Right, so what did he put right there? Faith, hope, and love uniting us to God. Then he says, fourth with regard to well-doing, which is to set us an example, Augustine says, man who might be seen uh, was not to be followed, but God was to be followed, who could not be seen, therefore God was made man, that he who might be seen by man and whom man might follow might be shown to man. Right? God gives us an example of how to live in the flesh. So, we accompany... I mean, the presupposition here is that with the visible mission of the Word made flesh, you have the invisible missions of the Word and the Spirit illumining the human heart. So that just as God came into the world in Christ, so He gives us the graces of faith, hope, and love to be united to Him in Christ and to follow Christ. This is Aquila Christi, who teaches us how to live as human beings. And then he capitulates this with the direct Augustinian, uh, Athanasian theme. Fifthly, with regard to the full participation of the divinity, which is the true bliss of man and the end of human life. And this is right, the final purpose of man, which we talk about in the Prima Secundae. Why did God create human beings to be united in him in beatitude? And this is bestowed upon us by Christ's humanity. As Augustine says in a sermon, again, taking this from, from through Hilary from Athanasius, God was made man that man might be made God. Actually, it shows you right there. It's somebody in the West saying the same thing as Athanasius. It's Augustine saying it. So, East and West say this, but there's a very Eastern theme. God be, became man that we may and may be God. So, he, he puts it all together there, you know. Um, that's the theme of divinization, I'd say, the entire paragraph. Moving off into God, our beatitude. And then you get to this other table. So, also, was this useful for our withdrawal from evil? Salvation from evil. First, because man is taught by it not to prefer the devil to himself nor to honor him who is the author of sin. Right? You get orientation from the incarnation. What should we honor? God. Augustine says, Since human nature is so united to God as to become one person, let, us not, let, let not these proud spirits dare to preserve themselves, to prefer themselves to man because they have no bodies. So, I mean, there's a little bit of a polemic there against angel, uh, bad angel, angelology, right? I mean, man knows he's vulnerable, and he knows the spiritual world, because they don't die, is superior to himself. And he's, he's therefore tempted to honor the spirits uh, more than he is himself or God to, uh, to make sort of deals with the spiritual world. But the Incarnation fixes that. It teaches us that we have a, a relationship with the living God who, uh, and that we should honor our own, we should hold our humanity in honor because God became a man. And so the frailty of the flesh is not something we should need to be uh, ashamed of or in dread of because now our life and our death has meaning because God became a man and died in the flesh. Secondly, because we are thereby taught how great is man's dignity, lest we should sully it with sin. 
As Augustine says, God has proved to us how high a place human nature holds among creatures inasmuch as he appeared to men as a true man. And then you have the famous sermon of Pope Leo on Christmas. Learn, O Christian, thy worth. And being made a partner of the divine nature, refuse to return by evil deeds to your former worthlessness. We read that on Christmas every year, right? It's wonderful. Thirdly, because in order to do away with man's presumption, the grace of God is commended in Jesus Christ through no merits of uh, of ours went before. Though no merits of ours went before, right, we're saved by grace. The Incarnation shows us in an imminent way we're saved by grace. Fourthly, because man's pride, which is the greatest stumbling block to our clinging to God, can be convinced and cured by humility so great, the humility of God in the flesh. And God lived a humble life among us as a carpenter, as one who rode on the back of a donkey, etc. And then here he capitulates this column with Anselm's, with a kind of restatement, his own restatement of Anselm's doctrine. Fifth, in order to free man from the thraldom of sin, as Augustine says, ought to be done in such a way that the devil should be overcome by the justice of man, Jesus Christ. And this was done by Christ satisfying for us. This is a technical term in Western theology, satisfactio. To make reparation for. It doesn't mean something like psychological like we would think. You know, I was thirsty and I drank Gatorade and I felt satisfied or something like that. Right? Satisfactio is, uh, rep- uh, is spiritual compensation. To make adequate spiritual, or to make adequate uh, personal compensation. Again, compensation here is not economic. Compensation is personal. You've offended someone, you ask forgiveness, and you make uh, reparation for your sin. Christ compensates or makes reparation for us, satisfies you. And now he says it's very important that be a man that do it, right? A human being, right? So it comes from within our human nature. And here he goes on to expose this is Anselm's argument in a nutshell. Now a mere man could not have satisfied for the whole human race, and God was not bound to satisfy. This is the great argument, the Cur Deus Homo of Anselm. Why? Well, see, it's just one, it's a, you know, one of us here gets crucified for everybody in the human race. How does that work? Right? Well, we're sinful and we're finite. Even if you were sinless, right? Even if the Virgin Mary obeyed for all of us, was very dutiful, did everything with perfect love, she's still finite. I mean, what's the... How does that work? Why, why would that be a compensation? It doesn't seem to, to be... Um, satisfactory Um, because the reparation needs to be made to God for all human sin and God is himself an infinite a subject of infinite dignity we've offended God God is infinite how do you make reparation for God by finite acts it doesn't work but God can't save humanity as a human being I mean God can't of himself uh, God is not bound of himself to satisfy for our sins, nor does it seem to make sense that God would do that. I mean, how would God not incarnate, make reparation to God, and why would he need to? It makes no sense whatsoever. Right? God repairing for us before God without the incarnation. That doesn't make any sense. Right? It's humanity that's in trouble. So we need a human being to make reparation, but we need a reparation that is of, wor- of a worthiness to, to, to satisfy for our indignity before God. Hence, it behooved Jesus Christ to be both God and man. As man, he's a fellow member of the human race, and he makes satisfaction through love. 
It's the love of Christ as man, His charity that satisfies. He makes reparation through love as a human being, a member of our human race. And yet, because He's also God, His actions also have carry in them a kind of dignity that's infinite. We'll talk more about this on Friday. Hence, Pope Leo says in the same sermon, weakness is assumed by strength. This should be familiar to you by now. Lowliness by majesty, mortality by eternity, in order that one and the same mediator of God and men might die in one and rise in the other. He died as man, and he rose to eternal life as man, but that eternal life is what he possesses as God. But this was our fitting remedy. Unless he was God... He would not have brought a remedy. Unless he was man, he would not have set an example. Now, he doesn't mention Anselm, but Anselm is really the one who develops that whole notion of why he needs to be both God and man in spades. Um, There's an interesting response, number two, where he talks about imperfect and perfect satisfaction. Um... But I'm not going to read that because we need to go in the next 15 minutes, the last 15 minutes, I want to talk about Article 3, which is really important. Whether if man had not sinned, God would have become incarnate. You think so? Yeah. Because uh, just by goodness of God, uh-huh. want to, to be like a couple, they love each other, they just want to be... Yeah. All right. Well, all right. Well, we'll see. We're going to see what the client says, and we're going to we're going to argue about that. You're, we have a scotist in the room. That's good. <laughs> Would God have become incarnate had humanity never sinned? Augustine says. Expound, well, <laughs> let me just talk about it for a minute. Um, two opinions that precede him. Okay. So right around the time of Aquinas, you have. Two different opinions about this in the main scholastics, I mean the giants that were writing at the time. Alexander of Hales, who was one of the great, one of the great scholastic doctors in the generation before Aquinas in Paris, who became a Franciscan and then was sort of the father of Franciscan scholastic theology. And St. Albert the Great, of course, the Dominican who was St. Thomas's teacher, they argue that um, it seems more probable that yes, God would have become incarnate. Had, even had we never sinned. It seems more probable. In other words, we, weren't, we don't know what that world would have been like. We're not in that world, but had that world existed, perhaps pro- more probably, yeah. Um, they argue, for example, the incarnation was revealed to the first man before sin. Adam knew of the incarnation to come. And therefore, this would have taken place even had sin never occurred. And they argue that Christ is the perfection of creation. So in a certain sense, if God created the world for, the, for a certain kind of perfection, then the incarnation would be the perfection of the world. Bonaventure, however, the great Franciscan scholastic, says no, it seems not. God would not have become incarnate. We, it seems more probable that he would not have become incarnate. And he has two reasons for this rejection. Uh, first of all, he says, this view is not found in scripture or tradition. It has not been revealed to us that God would have become incarnate otherwise. And secondly, he says, it risks to reduce Christ to an element within creation. In other words, it risks to make um, 
he says, he says Christ is above, this is quoting him, he says, Christ is above every perfection of the universe in his nature, grace, and glory. He's worried about saying, in a certain sense, God needs the creation to perfect himself. Or God created the creation in order to become incarnate, to add something to God, or to somehow um, make a perfection of the universe, a kind of final resting place for God. So right away there, you guys have interesting questions, right? And it becomes complicated. I have very strong opinions about this, but all, you know, everybody does. Alright, well, listen. So here's what he says. On the contrary, Augustine says, expounding what is set down in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which was lost. Right, so he goes to Scripture and he, Augustine's approval. His argument is, Scripture says, in the economy we live in, in the world we live in, in which the fall took place, the reason we are given for the incarnation in Scripture is that God came into the world to save us from sin. Let's say, the incarnation took place in our economy to save us from sin. Therefore, had man not sinned, the Son of Man would not have come. Or so one might argue. And on 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. <laughs> right? So what we say in the Creed... Well, how's it go? This, uh, for, for us men and for our salvation, He became man. Why did God become man? For our salvation. Alright. And the gloss says on Scripture, There was no cause of Christ coming into the world except to save sinners. Take away diseases, take away wounds, and there's no need of medicine. It's, it's, I mean, we'll see, the, we'll look at the other side of the argument in a minute. And now, he, now he, he answers. He says, Okay, I answer that. There are different opinions about this question. For some say that even if man had not sinned, the Son of Man would have become incarnate. Others assert the contrary. And seemingly our assent ought rather to be given to this opinion. So he says, It looks to me like he would not have become incarnate from what we can tell from Revelation had man not sinned. Okay, why? Okay, for such things as spring from God's will and beyond the creatures do can be made known to us only through being revealed in sacred scripture in which the divine will is made known to us. So the first thing he does is he say, look, answering this question is above our pay grade. Because we don't, we don't know what would have happened had we never sinned. Because what would have happened, it depends on what? The contingent will of God, which is above us. What would God have done had we never sinned? We don't know. How would we know? What by what's revealed to us, he would have to reveal it to us. Has he? What is? What has he revealed to us? Well, then he says this. Hence, since everywhere in the sacred scripture the sin of the first man is assigned as the reason of the incarnation, that now that's his claim. Uh, Scotists, Scotists will argue quite the contrary. But Aquinas says everywhere in scripture we look, we see that the principal reason, the motive of the incarnation, is to take away sin. Um, it is more in accordance with this to say that the work of the Incarnation was ordained by God as a remedy for sin so that had sin not existed, the Incarnation would not have been. So Aquinas is saying, look, let's be epistemically humble. How do we know these things? We know by what God has revealed to us. It's, the divine will is a mystery, the divine wisdom is a mystery. And in what we see is revealed to us, it seems that God became a man principally to take away, uh, to save us from our sins. Therefore, it seems from Scripture we would need to say 
that we, we don't see a reason that God would have become human had we never sinned. And then he says, And yet, the power of God is not limited to this. Even had sin not existed, God could have become incarnate. He certainly could have done it. Is it fitting, given that the fittingness of it was to save us from sin and to reunite us to our final end of, of the beatific vision? That doesn't seem a fitting reason to say he would have done it. That's the argument. Now, there's a couple of things that are at stake in this. Um, one of them is obviously about avoiding a priori demonstrations or arguments. Aquinas doesn't want us... He wants to limit what we can argue for to basing ourselves only on what's been revealed and not trying to make arguments about the possible a possible world that would have existed had the world we do ex- live in never been. So there's a kind of there's a principle of not trying to go back behind the revelation. And re- that's related to that is a, a, a recognition of divine freedom, a recognition of divine transcendence with regards to the divine economy and our human understanding. Uh, the, the divine economy unfolds according to divine wisdom and when we come to understand it from what God has revealed. Now, on the other hand, you know, the presupposition here is also that what happens in divine economy has something meaningful to it. So, once God does act in the world, you can kind of discern an order to what He does. It's not just an arbitrary collection of events that you just have to submit to by a blind act of will. That's the other extreme. I mean, one extreme is to say, well, we know so much about God from the Revelation that we can basically tell what He would have done in any possible world, even outside our world. The other is to say, our world is all we have, and our world is such a jumble and confusion that we just have to live with whatever God decrees and we don't even understand it. It's all darkness. <laughs> and see... What happens is after Aquinas, you get two in the France with the Franciscans. As a, this is, I'm not supposed to say this on tape, I suppose, but as a a, 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 a good friend of mine who was an English Dominican once said, um, "Why blame the, the um, corruption of the modern Western civilization on uh, Protestants and Jesuits when you can blame it on Franciscans?" Um, because basically the fall of, of the world uh, uh, of our culture comes through um, a couple of Franciscans. But anyway, so, I mean, you have, uh, on the one hand, nominalism, you know, from Occam, which is going to posit a kind of arbitrariness or the incapacity to discern in the will of God uh, necessities or fittingness, and everything becomes an arbitrary collage of divine will, uh, commandments of the divine will. I mean, famously, of course, the, the one that we, everybody uses against Occam is Occam says, God could have told us to hate him and made that meritorious for our salvation. So God could have given us the first commandment of the Decalogue could have been, you shall hate the Lord thy God. And if you fulfilled that commandment, then he would just voluntaristically give you salvation. But that's dumb. I mean, that's really terrible. It's, it's just not workable. Because there's no there's sort of arbitrariness, there's no divine wisdom. But then you can get the other extreme with our dear friend Duns Scotus, or at least so Thomas seems to be saying, seem to be um, convinced of. That with Scotus, you can deduce so much about God that you know a tremendous amount about what uh, God would have done, even had 
the world that we have now not existed and you had another another possible world. Well, anyway, um, so in Scotism, and now then Scotus comes around the 14th century, he was a great genius, a much more... Um, much more taken with the details of rational argumentation. I mean, if you like the like, analytic philosophy and all the details of sort of logical argumentation for logic's sake almost, I mean, Scotus is a sort of vivid arguer. But he also has his own important theological ideas. Of course, we should give him due credit for the Immaculate Conception, which he tried to articulate uh, and, uh, and made an important contribution in understanding the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary. But he has a, what we call, what we might call um, an absolute Christocentrism. For Scotus, Christ is the ultimate purpose of the creation per se. Christ's humanity is the perfect created reality and his adoration of God alone is the most worthy of God. So, for Scotus, why did God create the world? Ultimately, to become incarnate. To unite himself to human nature. And why is that the apex and perfection of creation? Because in the creation you have the most perfect adoration of God. A creature who though finite also has this sort of infinite dignity giving now whole he doesn't call Christ a creature but I mean you have a created human nature in Christ giving homage to God through adoration that is um, of a supreme perfection because it's it's the acts of the man Jesus worshipping but it's Jesus worshipping in union with his own divinity which is infinite so there's this dignity to the worship of Jesus that's very unique that no one else could have of a God, the, the worship of a God-man the adoration of a God-man now that's interesting um, a lot of people if you read Matthias Schaben the 19th century uh, the scholastic theologian a great thinker he's got a book called Mysteries of Christianity and if you read him on why God became man you'll see he, he sort of merges Aquinas and Scotus. So he'll say God became a man in order to uh, save us from our sins, but in doing so also realized the most perfect, uh, the perfection, the greatest perfection of creation possible, particularly through the adoration of Christ. And there are a lot of Thomists who kind of do this, you know, mix things uh, together. Um, well, Here's a quote about from a French uh, Dominican theologian named Francois Daguet. He says about this in Scotus. We see the emergence here of absolute Christocentrism, which sees in the Christ Word incarnate the final end of all creatures of the creation itself, such that he is the unique sanctifier of the created universe. Grace, therefore, is by essence Christic, coming through Christ. And Christ is the source of all grace, just as well for the angels as for Adam and Eve while they were still innocent. This is interesting. Aquinas thinks all human beings are saved through the grace of Christ, but the angels receive their grace not through the humanity of Jesus, but from the Trinity, Father, Word, and Spirit. So we're dependent on the humanity of Christ in a way the angels aren't. Suarez and Scotus say even the angels are in a way created in view of the grace of the humanity of Jesus. At least Suarez says that. I think Scotus does too. So even the angels receive their grace through the humanity of Christ. Yeah. How do some all things being created through Christ worship today? Well, you have... You mean in the scriptures? 
Scotus will look at the like First Corinthians and say he's the firstborn of all creation, and they'll say, well, all things were created not only through his divinity, which is what Aquinas, Aquinas when Aquinas reads Colos, sorry Colossians one, he says when it says all, he's the firstborn of all creation, creation, and all things are created through him, he says that's by virtue of his divinity, because he's the the Word through whom all things were made. But Scotists, a lot of Scotists will read that and say that's biblical evidence. All things were actually created not only from the Word, but in sort of in view of His humanity, and so for His humanity. So the humanity is like the of Christ is the first principle of creation. It's like when God begins to think through the creation, the first idea is the humanity of Jesus, and everything else is created for the humanity of Jesus. You get what they call universal secondary causality. I have a friend who teaches at Loyola in Baltimore who's a Scotist. He's a delightful man. But he thinks that the humanity of Christ upholds the laws of physics. Which I don't believe is necessary. I mean, I believe God and the Son of God, the Word, upholds the laws of the physical universe. But I don't think that you have to say that the humanity of Jesus upholds all the laws of physics. I don't know what that means exactly. As a Scotus, he wants to maximize the role of the humanity of Christ in every aspect of creation. Now, he that's a bit fanciful, but I mean, the point is to show that you can get people still argue about this. At least two of us in the whole universe still argue about this. He comes down here for coffee, and we excommunicate each other. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, well, it could be, but here I'll finish with this. Um, it seems to me one thing that's at stake here is what's the ultimate purpose of creation? Um, the ultimate purpose of creation, what's the center of all creation? Is the center of creation Christ? You'd say, well, it has to be. No, I'd say the center of creation is the Trinity. See, for Aquinas, the center of all creation is the Trinity. Ultimately, he created us for the Trinity to see God face to face. How are we united, you and I, to God? We don't become the second person of the Trinity through the hypostatic union. We see the second person of the Trinity. And in the Word, we see the Father and the Spirit. Right, so, union for Aquinas with God that's most perfect is the beatific vision for the angels and for men. And Christ is the way. God becomes a man so that we might become God. But what does that really mean, say we might become God? That we might see God, that we might be conformed to God through the beatific vision. That would have taken place even had we, had we never fallen that could have. That was still the. There, there was the fact. The fact that we fell doesn't change the purpose of why we were created. That the Trinity might be the center of our lives, and we might see God face to face. The incarnation is introduced to lead us back into the communion of the Trinity with the Trinity. As where the danger, the Thomas would say, the danger of Scotus is he's about to make the, the purpose of the creation man to have a perfectly worshiping humanity. Now, it's very noble to have a perfectly worshipping humanity, but it's not the purpose of creation. It's a factor, it's a dimension of creation, but the purpose of creation is God, and to see God face to face, and yes, to worship God. But, does God create to perfect the creation, I mean, to perfect Himself? I mean, does He need a God-man to be more perfect? Does that add some honor to God that He lacks to have a humanity? No, He became man for us. Now, of course, Scotus wouldn't deny that, but it just—it seems like a slippery slope to me. There's not a the church doesn't. Both of these positions are permitted by the church, and some Thomists try to kind of have it both ways. The later 
Salamankian school, they'll say things like, God foresaw the fall from all eternity. He did not will it, but He permitted it so that He could accrue a yet greater glory from His creation by becoming incarnate and suffering and dying on the cross and restoring us to friendship in Christ. So ultimately God created the universe not only for the incarnation, their Thomas will say this, not only for the incarnation but for the passion and resurrection. So He foresaw the mystery of sin and allowed it in order to, to, to create what was greatest, which was not just the incarnation but the redemption. The problem with that is you can risk to introduce sin into the first intentions of God as if He kind of needs sin to perfect creation so that the passion can take place. And, and sin cannot enter into God's giant artistic divine fresco. It's just some dark patches you need to make the light shine brighter. But then that's a little bit scary because then you've got God kind of throwing a oh you know we'll put a touch of earthquake in there and a little bit of mass murder in here and it'll make the, the, the cross shine out brighter I mean I, there are dangers that way too an aestheticism of sin so I mean I, I, I now I do think and I'll just to finish this I think someone like Cajetan is quite sound Cajetan sort of says God created us for beatitude he permitted us to sin he did not will it after we sinned he used, he, the incarnation is the most fitting means for our restoration of friendship with God but also once he becomes incarnate of course and this is Aquinas too I mean of course uh, Christ is what's most perfect in creation so we, we don't need to oppose perfection of creation with the motive of the incarnation being uh, for us and for our salvation but anyway, I mean, I'm not. I didn't want to teach the class to sort of resolve the problem. I wanted to introduce the problem. So uh, I'm, I'm quite happy with Aquinas' approach, and I've told you why. But um, I would like you to continue to think about it, and we can of course talk about it this afternoon if you wish. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Amen.